The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Cord. There we go. Yay. You're on. All right. <laughs> New sound system. Okay, so I thought I would talk a little bit about the relationship between concentration and wisdom. Concentration looks like it's the eighth factor of the path. You might get the impression that it's the goal and the end-all of this practice, but it's actually, concentration is actually a means for opening the mind to insight and wisdom. So there's actually another teaching which there's a, a paper on in, uh, in the main place where you've been finding Gill's talks, if you've been looking there, on the tenfold path, which is... You've been the wrong one. Well, we've talked a lot about the path being a spiral back between, you know, how you, you get concentrated and then you see more and then that feeds back into a deeper view. So if there's kind of a dotted line back to right view from right concentration, then these, two, these other two factors are expanding on what that line is. And I'm not really going to focus on those exactly today because uh, I just want to talk about what, what inspires me is not so much holding either concentration or insight as a goal, but really understanding how the whole process of settling the mind and just working on more mindfulness and more concentration requires wisdom, it is wisdom, it's deepening wisdom, and then they grow up together more or less. And as Liz was saying, the concentration is a fruit, the insight is a fruit. So if you want fruit, you don't just, you know somehow focus entirely on the fruit. You focus on planting the seed, watering the tree, all that sort of thing, and eventually you might get some fruit if circumstances are right. And so <laughs> so I want to talk about that. Um, it's really not helpful to get hung up on the goal of getting concentrated particularly, as it is to learn to understand and enjoy the process, because all these things, kindness, happiness, Skillfulness, compassion, wisdom are all working together to really deepen our ability to settle the mind and look at what's going on and learn from it. So one way to see the whole path, according to uh, Venerable Analio, who's a wonderful monastic teacher around these days, is that it's a path of a refinement of happiness. So it's also a path of refining and transforming our habits, this whole habit structure that we have by the time we reach adulthood and find this path that leads to suffering. And it's sometimes taught that there are three different phases of this reduction of these habits of suffering. The first is at the sort of transgressive level where you're actually acting out, hitting people, you know, using unwise speech, doing things. And so you can learn, as we've been working on, to begin to restrain and retrain your acts of body, speech, and mind. So you're not always just believing, at least, that it's the right thing to do to automatically just follow along these unrecognized urgings that come from the deep-seated roots of greed or hatred or delusion. 
Then the second level is sometimes called manifestation. And that's where we're really working on calming the uprising of the thoughts and the emotions and the intentions internally. So it's one thing to learn that when these intentions to act unwisely come up that we don't work on them. But then there's still this internal struggle where they're coming up and we're having to work with them. So this is the phase of really calming and settling and learning how to meditate so that you have periods when more and more these tendencies are not so much rising. And then it's very important because then you begin to see that there are actually alternative sources of happiness and pleasure and peace and confidence besides just making the world behave the way you want it to or getting everything you think you need. So it's very important to taste into this, uh, the actual experience of being a little more calm, a little more happy, a little more joyful, a little more trusting. And that goes along with, uh, that's part of what actually dismantles the power of our belief in greed, hatred, and delusion to take care of us. So... um, Then the third thing is these latent forces. So there's often, nevertheless, you know, we can all imagine circumstances that we get into that still trigger us. And we still have some fundamental, until, you know, the end of the fully enlightened path, we have some potential that we haven't really thoroughly seen through that it is not worth suffering. It is not worth clinging and grasping in a certain way to certain kinds of outcomes that are really just not helpful. We don't learn that until we can see very deeply. And concentration, so concentration serves these two purposes. It gives us tastes of alternative, how beautiful it is to be peaceful and calm and joyful. And also then it sort of steadies the platform of the mind. There's so often, you will read these analogies of with a camera, you know, if the camera is shaky, you don't get a very good picture, you can't see clearly. Or if reading somewhere the table that you're doing a scientific experiment on is shaky, you can't trust your results. So concentration is about stabilizing the mind. And then you can really see more clearly. Because usually we're just swept along on reactivity to things that are happening. And we don't really see where they come from. We don't really see exactly what is the little move of the mind that decides it's going to go with a fantasy instead of stay here. Or exactly what is it that's so unpleasant about hearing, I don't know, some criticism or some word or something like that. What is it exactly that, where in your own body do you kind of tense up and then, you know, that's what actually hurts. The words are just sound and then somewhere inside you, you react. And So the more calm and steady your mindfulness is, the more you can really see this Maybe it's because I used to be a software engineer, but I think of it in terms of like computer debugging. You know, you really you really get down there where you can see, oh, right there, that's where they added one and they shouldn't have, you know. And so <laughs> somehow something in the mind is really, really looking at exactly where is it that suffering gets started. Where is the buy-in happening to, you know, to greed or to hatred or to fear or to turning away from experience. So the steadiness and the overall sense of well-being that can develop from calming the mind lets you have a container in which you're feeling basically safe and held and you can begin to watch that stuff with more impersonality and really start to see what's happening. So... um, 
I think Liz did a great job of describing concentration. We have a little overlap here in what I was going to say, so let me look a second here. But, you know, it's pretty clear that when the mind is agitated, it really easily jumps around. So the essential, it, it believes this, it buys that, it doesn't want to do that, it jumps on this train, it jumps on that train. And so part of this whole process of concentration, to get more concentrated, is to have less of that going on because somehow it's not so tempted to do that. The pleasure of settling down is beginning to counteract the temptation that, oh, no, I really should jump up and read email right now, or no, I really need to pursue that train of thought right now. And then you begin to stay more and more there. And one of my teachers gave the analogy, like when you first start to practice, it's like you have an upside-down bowl and you're trying to balance a marble on the top of it and it just wants to roll off all the time, all the time, all the time. And the more you practice, it's kind of becoming a little more concave. So it's more like a bowl and the marble tends to stay put more often. Or a similar analogy is of a marble whirling around in a bowl and your energy is so strong you keep whir- you keep spinning it. You know, you keep giving it a little spin. And then finally when you quit giving it those little spins, it settles down and settles down and settles down. So that's kind of one way of understanding this process of concentration. And Liz talked very clearly about the different ways of doing that. And I just want to emphasize that it's not a choice, for me at least, between this is my way or that. I use all these ways, and in one session of meditation I might begin one way, and then it feels natural to transition to another way. So I often begin, as she had us do in that wonderful guided meditation, of just checking in with what's here, fully acknowledging everything that's going on, like kind of patting all the children on the head and everyone's here, you know, and let them all settle down, settle down, settle down. And then at some point the breath becomes kind of one of the main things that's happening and then I can kind of get with that and stay with that a little more. And then who knows, somehow some emotion might well up and then it's appropriate to switch back to being with that and, you know, keeping company and watching all the effects of that in the mind and seeing what that stirs up and then that might settle down again And sometimes, as many of you have found, the metta practice, you know, that attitude needs to be brought into it all the time. And sometimes it's really appropriate to take time and actually do that explicit, you know, cultivation of metta, as we teach now on Wednesday evenings. That can be really helpful in stabilizing the mind, opening the heart, and giving you a great platform to then bring that attitude in toward everything that you're doing. So... The message I want to give you is really to trust your own path. And part of this is learning for yourself what is actually feels like, what really feels good, and what really is actually agitating. So you're learning, and what you're learning there is the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. You're learning, this is a little bit more suffering. This is a little bit less suffering. And you're getting a feeling for what is suffering, you know, we, we, it's easy to say, oh, suffering is when something external happens, like you don't get what you want or you get what you don't want or something even really tragic happens. But what is that thing that we add to it where we grab onto it with the mind and start trying to fix the past in a way that we can't fix and trying to imagine what's going to happen in the future and how are we, what is the stress, what is really that stress that we're adding to experience? And so you just, there's nothing for it but getting a feel for yourself for what is more and what is less and what feels like a wholesome direction for you. And it's an experimental process of try this and then see, well, really, did that help or not? 
you know, in a big picture, you might try a practice for a year and it might help you a lot and then you might think, well, now it's time to try something else. So it's really a matter of learning to trust that you can try all these practices and see what works for you. One of the themes that I did want to touch on here is um, the way in which the process of settling into sama samadhi is wisdom, is through the lens of the hindrances. So this is a very common teaching of five ways of categorizing what it is that we're doing instead. What are these forces that pull us away from settling down? I remember when I went on my first, I went to my first three-month retreat and I was all, you know, anxious and excited and happy to be there and scared to be there. And the first talk was on the hindrances and it's just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, I've signed up for three months of the hindrances. (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. I wanted three months of bliss. (laughs) I'm going to have three months of the hindrances. Of course, it was neither one. It was was interesting. It was everything. In that length of time, everything happens. But but, um, it's, you know, these are things that are, they are what's happening. And so what's so brilliant about this list of boiling it down to five things is that it helps with that really essential move of getting out of the particulars of the story that you're hung up on at the moment and seeing it as an example of one of these five human tendencies. Because then you're stepping back a little bit from the, from the who said what and what am I going to do about it to looking at, oh, this is wanting or not wanting or agitation or sleepiness you know, this is getting involved in the conceptual mind instead of staying with direct experience. And if you can identify what's going on as one of those things, then you're already, you've made a really significant move in the direction of wisdom, of disidentifying from the particulars of this thing. And you're starting to look at it in this universal way as one of these human tendencies that we're working at learning to identify. So I think it is worth spending a little bit of time looking at at these hindrances. So we'll just talk a little bit about each one of the five. And the Buddha has a great metaphor based on water for each one of them, what they do to the mind. And then another metaphor for what it's like when you're finally free of that hindrance. And I don't mean finally. You're finally free at the end, but you can be temporarily free. And being it's a beautiful feeling. It's a way to understand what is this good feeling of joy and happiness and confidence. Oh, it's the absence of these things. None of these things is happening, you know. And then it kind of chips away at our deep-seated tendency to buy into the story that these things want us to buy. Like, yes, I need that, or that has to stop, or something. If you see that the absence of that feeling itself is really uh, at the root of your calm and pleasant sensations in the moment. So the first of the hindrances is sense desire, is desire, wanting, you know, wanting something. And all of these images that the Buddha gives are, are imagine a clear for imagine a forest pool. And when it's clear, you can see all the way to the bottom. You can see all the little pebbles. You can see all the little formations that are way down there on the bottom. And what happens to that water when under the influences of these different things? So sense desires compared to throwing colored dye in the water. So you can't see it. And it's so great because you're just bedazzled by some surface delusion appearance. Like, oh, that 
that new computer is so cool. It's all white or something, or it's pink, or it's whatever it is. And that's why I have to have it. Or it has this extra little feature, and that's why I have to have it. And so you're or that person. You know, that person has perfect hair or beautiful teeth or something, and that's why I have to have them. And so it's, it's just uh, it's throwing this colored dye in the water so that all you see is the positive sense-pleasure aspect of something, and you're really out of... Out of uh, a holistic perception of what they really are. And so the way to work with this is usually called guarding the sense doors. And what that means is clearly recognizing a sense impression for what it is. You know, so I think I've talked before about the, the difference between walking through a store when you're not guarding yourself and you just want everything because everything's designed to be appealing in some way versus really having this idea that you know, oh, look, it's interesting to see what, where's the mind going? Oh, look, there's a sight, there's seeing, there's smelling, there's that, now that's arising. What's appealing about that is, you know, the shape and noticing different things. So that's guarding the sense doors, it's really recognizing. And again, as the mind calms down, you can begin to see that seeing is happening, hearing is happening. And when you notice that seeing or hearing is happening, it gives you a little space before you jump into the appeal of the sight or the sound and jump on the train there. So the wisdom that comes from working with this is learning the discomfort of wanting itself. How the mind gets split so that half of it is on the imaginary perfect of the thing you want and the other and then it's ignoring the actual tension that's involved in wanting. So you had maybe, you were sitting there feeling peaceful and content and then some advertising flyer comes through your mail and suddenly you want something. And you are you noticing that you were content and now you're a little agitated, like, oh, oh I can get this, I need, should I get this one or that one? And why do you need that? You don't need it, you just got sold something, right? So that's the wisdom there is the feeling the discomfort of wanting itself and seeing how our attention and perception get distorted. And then when we're free from that, it's, the Buddha compares it to getting out of debt. And I, I can see that, or repaying a loan. The feeling of not being overextended and overreaching is how I can relate to that metaphor. So you're not, you're not reaching out there somehow. You're just being content. So then the second hindrance is aversion. And aversion is compared to boiling water. So when the water is boiling and agitated, you can't see underneath it. Um, you can practice with this. It's, this is a great thing to practice the Brahma Viharas with, really getting in touch with the underlying wish to simply be happy and to extend this to other people. The wisdom that you learn to work to working with this is the value of kindness and equanimity itself, that things are going to happen, we can relate to things, break it down into the sensory experience of the body, and the individual thoughts in the mind and really look at how what are you buying into as you put that aversion together with that belief that this has to stop I can't stand this how can you back off of that it's a a quote from the Buddha being angry with another person what can you do to him can you destroy his virtue and his other good qualities have you not come to your present state by your own actions and will also go hence according to your own actions 
Anger toward another is just as if someone wishing to hit another person takes hold of glowing coals or a heated iron rod or of excrement. And in the same way, if the other person is angry with you, what can he do to you? Can he destroy your virtue and your other good qualities? He too has come to his present state by his own actions and will go hence according to his own actions. Like an unaccepted gift or like a handful of dirt thrown against the wind, his anger will fall back on his own head. So this is offered as a reflection when you're really buying into aversion towards someone or when you're feeling someone's aversion coming to you. So the wisdom involved in this is really equanimity of noticing the conditioned nature of anger and that our real refuge is in our own virtue. It's compared to getting over an illness, letting go of that. I really had that experience of what an internal kind of poison that anger is and when it goes away it you you know somehow it's released some bad stuff inside your body and when it goes away it's like that's finally cleared it's like getting over an illness. And then the hindrance of sloth and torpor is compared to a pond being overgrown with algae and moss. So it's just you know. <laughs> so obviously we can Two things like focus on something enlivening. The in-breath is quite enlivening. So you can put more of your attention on the in-breath if you're meditating. There's, you know, focusing on light. There are various temporary ways to try to enliven yourself. It's also useful to reflect on your motives for practice. Maybe you can start to see this as a kind of subtle aversion or an avoidance strategy. The mind likes going to sleep as a kind of defense. You know, the mind likes to just zone out and go to sleep. So if you can get a little spark of interest in being able to see that. um, It's a real turnaround place in your practice when you understand that the mind that knows that sleepiness and sloth and torpor and sluggishness are happening is actually clear. So if you can if you can say clearly to yourself, wow, I'm really totally confused and sleepy and sluggish and don't want to do this, Tune into that part that just, yes, that's what's happening. It's perfectly clear that that's what's happening. So you, it's like a mirror. I love this story from, uh, from Andrea, like a mirror that's completely fogged. You know, you might think this mirror is all foggy and it's useless, but actually the mirror is accurately reflecting each little drop of water that's on it, right? So there's that part of your mind that knows exactly what's going on right now. And that can be very enlivening and, and uh, also wise to tune into the clarity of innate knowing that can know even these murky mind states. So the wisdom that you're cultivating here is an appropriate sense of spiritual, what's called sometimes spiritual urgency. Realizing that life is short and you can cultivate these qualities and you know, you have the ability to do that. You don't need to just always use zoning out and falling asleep as your main defense. And then becoming aware of the power of awareness to see these unclear states clearly. And it's compared to, getting over it's compared to being let out of jail. So it's the mind that's free of confinement, the mind that's free of feeling com- confined by this sleepiness. And you can really get that feeling of freedom just by seeing it clearly. Because that part of the mind is not in jail. That part of the mind is able to see what's going on. 
then restlessness and worry is compared to this pond being whipped by wind. So you're just running around crazy, trying everything. The mind wants something. It doesn't even know what it wants. It just wants. It wants this, it wants that. It wants to think about this, then think about that. I often feel this way when I'm really caught up in fixing, trying to fix something. You know, and I'm trying this and trying that and trying to talk myself out of it this way and that way. And I'm doing everything except just stop and say, there's some kind of do-good going on here. Let me just feel it. Let me just stop and really try to stop doing anything and turn to a kind of receptive awareness of what's going on. Um, Sometimes it's physical. So I've had many sits, especially on retreat, where it's just a lot of physical agitation going on, a lot of restless shifting. And then I go to a very broad, whole body awareness, you know, trying to take in a lot of space around you. I have this image that my whole body is like a fussy child sitting on my lap and I'm just soothing it somehow and it's okay, okay. You know, like you could go ahead and have a conversation with a friend with some kind of cranky two-year-old on your lap and you're just kind of, okay, okay, you know, but you're getting on with your practice and so I can sort of be that way with my body when my body's really restless. So... You know, we can work at, uh, and this is another area where, as Liz mentioned, the ethical factors of the path come into practice. If you've been living a life with a lot of um, unethical behavior, your mind's going to be pretty stirred up when you try to sit down. So the the clean living is a longer-term strategy for working with this. Forgiveness is a strategy. Forgiveness of yourself, because right now you're doing something wholesome. You know, so maybe you can let go of the idea of all the things that you haven't done perfectly in the past. The wisdom that comes from working with that aspect of it is this wisdom of conditions. Things happened in the past because conditions came together. And at some moment, your wisdom and mindfulness were not stronger than the temptation to do something unskillful. So you did it. That was then. Now you've learned something from it. This is now. Now you have an opportunity to learn even more from it and the future will be different as a result of what you're learning right now. So really taking in this this understanding of conditionality. Cultivating confidence in intention, in your own wise intention and grounding yourself in this present sensory awareness of what's happening. Association, another thing, cause of working with getting over that is restlessness and worry is association with people who possess this dignity and restraint and calm so it can be very helpful to just bring to mind uh, somehow a lot of our minds we don't believe that it's safe or trustworthy to just not quit fixing everything and running around crazy that we have to keep up with that somehow and so it's very helpful to me to bring to mind an image of people that I admire and respect. You know, somebody like Thich Nhat Hanh or Gil or the Dalai Lama or somebody who seems to move through life calmly and be getting away with it. It can kind of <laughs> remind you that that's possible and that you actually respect and appreciate these people. And so there's something there that's very valuable. It might help you you know, work on your view that keeps fueling restlessness and worry. So that's another way in which the wisdom of right view comes into play is working with uh, seeing the conditioned nature of the mind and body and really understanding that it's futile to keep fueling that kind of restlessness. And it's compared to being freed from slavery, 
when you're done with it. And I really relate to that as my kind of favorite kind of anxiety, which is like being a slave to other people's opinion and whatever what the whole world thinks I should be doing and what I imagine I should be doing. And ideas of the past and future and what's going to happen. And just to be free from all that is indeed like being free from slavery. So the fifth hindrance is called skeptical doubt and it's compared to muddy water. A dark and muddy pond. It's like being placed in the dark. What's ironic is that we don't think we might think of it the opposite because it often manifests as a whole lot of thinking and trying to figure things out. And I really realize that there's a place in me that would rather know what enlightenment is than be enlightened. <laughs> I want to understand it, you know. I want to be able to say it in sentences and own it and hold it and write it down and that's, you know, that's not it. That keeps the mind spinning on words and sentences and this guy's opinion and that person's opinion and imagining what it might be and all that. It, 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 might, manif- it might masquerade as a kind of faith or as a kind of wisdom or as a kind of study or understanding, but really it's just keeping you, it's keeping the mind spinning. It's keeping you from just directly contacting what's going on right now. Perhaps feeling some... You know, when we finally kind of settle in concentration and we begin to experience not much going on that's a new experience that we're not used to and the mind doesn't like new things and so when there's something about kind of not much going on that a little bit resonates with loneliness or it resonates with um, not knowing these are things we don't like you know, so it helps to recognize that a lot of the mind then bounces right back into theorizing about what's going on and thinking you need to do something else and yak, 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 yak. And so that's really the hindrance of preferring to keep thinking about it instead of just being with it. The more you can just tune into what is actually happening, you know, it's some sensation, it's some thought, it's just the experience of calm. You know, just learning to recognize, oh, this is calm and not much is happening. But then agitation is happening. A little anxiety is happening. Okay, that's what's happening. You know, a little, a feeling of loneliness. And then you probably get on a train of thought about how this is really not what you really want. And you can you can notice that. So all these are ways, the, the wisdom is really about arousing interest in direct experience. And really getting it that it's right here. We were talking in my little group earlier today. It's right here. It's right now. Doubt wants to keep you focused on arguing about goals in the future and, you know, wondering whether anybody really knows where any of this is going and how's the whole world constructed and what does it all mean to me. It wants to keep you there instead of this right now, right here. This is being alive. This is what it is to be. You're going to find it in the present moment, not through a lot of speculation about various things. Wisdom is defined by the Buddha as being no longer perplexed about wholesome states. So you know what's wholesome and what's not. You know what's the here and now and the simple present and what's... When you're actually learning is when you're just navigating your life based on what's actually happening right now, not caught up in a whole drama about abstract futures and theories and so forth. 
So being free from this hindrance is compared to completing a long journey across a desert full of bandits and you're back in a land of safety. So in other words, you know how to practice. You're back on the trail, you're back on the path, you know where you're going. You're not lost in speculative views of various sorts. So that's a tour of the five hindrances. And it's, again, it's just a great way to ask yourself, could you characterize, if you find yourself not settling down and really you can't seem to settle down, you might ask yourself, which of these five things is predominantly going on? And then by relating to it in that way, you've at least lifted yourself a little bit out of the particular thing that's got you caught. And you can see it as one of these tendencies and maybe you can work with it in that basis. So a hindrance is no longer a hindrance once you recognize it. That's the other thing. When it doesn't anymore have the power to hijack your awareness off into whatever the agenda of that particular hindrance is, then it's not a hindrance anymore. It's an object of awareness. It's a mind state. It's a body state. It's something that you're knowing. And then eventually, if you're practicing with a particularly intended object, it calms down and you can get back to your breath or the metta or whatever if you have a particular object in mind. So in a way, these hindrances stay with you all the time. Every, even if you're very, very concentrated and you're in a, in a state of, you know, quite a lot of calm, something, there's some agitation. Most of the settling through the states of concentration are described as noticing there's still some kind of agitation going on at this level. What else can I let go of? You know, so it gets very subtle. Subtle restlessness, subtle sloth and torpor, Maybe you're not caught up in the world of wanting or not wanting, but you might be subtly wanting more concentration. You might be subtly wanting, you know, thinking you're getting pretty good at this meditation. Maybe I'm in our hut, you know, little thoughts go by in your mind. and So there's subtle things like that. You're still doing, you're still trying to think that I have to make this happen. So there's a lot of subtle, subtler and subtler variations of these hindrances. Slipping off into subtle sloth and torpor is just where the mind just kind of drifts and doesn't quite know what's going on anymore. You kind of sink. It's easy to get so calm in concentration that you uh, then kind of hop on, oh, this is nice, and it's like slinking into a warm bath, and you've lost your awareness at that point. And that's not really right con- some uh, right concentration. That's a kind of little slide into sleeping. And so (laughs) that can happen. And then there's just trying a little too hard, you know. Maybe you've heard too much teaching about concentration and you keep trying to think, oh, is this that factor or that factor and what do I need to do here a little bit? And you're just trying a little, or just trying a little too hard and that adds a little too much energy and gives you a little bit of restlessness. So this seesaw between restlessness and sloth and torpor follows you all the way through in a way. So uh, so these are good to bear in mind. And so this concentration then prepares the mind for insight. And insight is really seeing the very deeply the dukkha of clinging, the the constant change of real experience, the the direct experience of life is very ephemeral and constantly changing. 
And we are always trying to hang on to something, find something to hang on to. And what we often try to hang on to with is our concepts, our mind. We're trying to pin it down, have it be something. Have, if this state could only last, if this state could be a little better, something like that we're always trying to do to experience. And so you're just seeing more and more deeply the futility of that basic move of trying to get things to hold still and be the way you want. And so insight is just seeing more and more deeply. And it might sound like more and more of a cause for despair, but it actually isn't because as you let go, you feel better and better. And so you're actually feeling more stable, more calm, more clear. And this, whatever this particular move is of trying to grasp at things is just not doing what it's advertised that it will do for you. And so you're really getting wiser and letting go of... It's been compared to like rope burn, you know, like you're sliding down a rope and you keep trying to grab onto it. And the good news is there's no bottom. The rope, it's not like if you let go, you're not going to, you know, splat. It just goes on and it's okay. And it's okay all the way through is the, is the claim. I'm not, I'm, I haven't died yet. I can't personally attest to whether, how well this works all the way. But so far, so good. <laughs> as far as, as the more you let go, the more, it, the less it hurts. And so that's the idea. And so really, by stabilizing the mind, we're seeing on a more and more subtle level how, no, you really can't grab onto that either. No, you really can't grab onto that either. It's just subtly disturbing and, or subtly more calming. So that's one, one way to understand how concentration leads to insight. So the Buddha says there's actually no, ultimately, we're letting go of effort. So we use right effort up to the point where we're sort of, it's more like, kind of like one of those car washes where you get just right, right in there, you get right aligned, and then it, you know, and then you're taken through the rest of the way. So at some point, the mind is kind of with it, and the, the magnetic pull of staying concentrated is stronger than the pulls to go all over the place. So it becomes what's called effortless effort. And often we go back and forth between, it's like Andrea talks about, you know, a duck that paddles and glides and paddles and glides and different analogies like that. The Buddha says, for one who is concentrated, there is no need to intend, may I know and see things as they really are. It's a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. So that kind of helps with that last little bit of doubt where you think, no, I have to actually figure this out. No, you don't. You have to just open up and clearly know and then trust that lower mechanisms, more universal mechanisms than your little grasping knowing mind will draw the right conclusions. So... I just want to say that I'm sure you've all had some taste of this during the year. I'm sure you've seen some places where something is causing, the, a habit that you used to have has been clearly seen to be causing some suffering. And it's a little easier to let go of it now. Some learning has happened. You might notice it a little sooner. What learned that? I mean, if you could have done that, you would have done it a long time ago. But something in you has learned a little bit that that's not so wise. So it comes up in a lesser strength. Or it's easier to let go of. Or something like that. 
So that's an example of this process of insight. Something has seen a little bit of the truth that this feels better than that, the comparing the first and third noble truths. This is better than that. And something is learning and, you know, it will keep going. So we keep practicing and it keeps learning and it keeps letting go more and more. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the only requirements for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. (laughs) So we've all started and we've given it a good nine months at least, so I hope that you all continue. And uh, it's a beautiful path. I really appreciate the time that you've all given to spending a year looking at it. And uh, I hope it's just inspiring you to keep going. So we have one more breakout session here, which I've lost my paper. Thank you. Let's get in uh, groups of four again and maybe a different group. And we'll just reflect a little on this being the end of the program. So get together and we'll have a very broad question for you to consider in the same way that we did before, just going around. Last chance to meet some new people that you haven't met with. (laughs) Anybody you don't recognize, go right for them. It may not be possible to find all new people at this point, so... (laughs) By the way, I'm suddenly thinking I should have told you what those other two factors are called. They're called right knowledge and right release. And that's like when you really see that point of where this is starting to cause suffering, then something lets go and doesn't do that again. So that's right knowledge and right release, and it gets deeper and deeper. Okay, so here's uh, something... Well. I'll I'll read this question and then maybe we'll take a minute of silence for you to consider it and then we'll just start going around sharing. What new understandings or practices have the most momentum for you right now? What are you most inspired to carry forward and cultivate? You can think about the whole year or right now. Something you want, some things you would like to remember from this experience and really carry forward and cultivate. Helps to say them out loud.
Okay, I just noticed that we are quite over time, so let's get started. Um, sometimes it's really hard for me to figure out what it is that I'm clinging or aversive to mm -hmm. like when you said the dukkha of clinging it was like dang that's what I've been suffering from for the last two days mm -hmm. when I realized my head isn't empty anymore and the narrative is back and mm -hmm. <laughs> um, are there any Shortcuts to identifying what's happening well, when it's hiding? I wouldn't get hung up on identifying what's happening if it's not obvious. I mean, you can just say it's this, you know? <coughs> so I, I, I really, I mean, I love this thing from Ajahn Sumedho, who's one of my favorite teachers. Right now, it's like this. And you don't have a word for it. But having a word for it is not the same as knowing... It's like the mirror with the fog right on it, you know. Right now it's like this. And just a little bit backing up and kind of floating. There's a, there's a little bit of kind of hovering or floating over the whole situation. Like the whole thing right now, it's like this. And there's a little bit of a clinging activity and grasping in that wanting to take the pickaxe to it and go in there and figure it out, you know. Just let that go. So just trusting that, you know, big picture like this. Also, it's a nice day. You know, that might come to mind. <laughs> anyway. Thank you. That's very yeah, helpful. we can definitely get hung up on overanalyzing exactly what's going on. And that's the wanting mind itself. Great question. Yeah. Could you pa pass the mic over? Um... I didn't realize uh, until you were talking about doubt that that's a, I think is maybe bigger in uh, for me than I thought. Um, but when you said that it generally involves a lot of thinking, um, I don't know that that particularly applies. Oh, so, mm -hmm. so I'm doubtful about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I might have been speaking too much for my own personality type. So there's probably many other. Say more about your own experience. Well, um, in particular, the doubt that I'm concerned, uh, thinking about or concerned about is um, uh, am I getting anywhere? Am mm -hmm. I making progress? Mm -hmm. Is this what I, 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 um, I need to be doing? And it's, sometimes I feel like I, okay, well, maybe I need to be doing this. Maybe I need to mm -hmm. be doing this. Right. Maybe I should right. be doing this. Right. Um, or maybe I should, you know, I should just kind of let it all go and not right. really do much of anything. Right. Um, so. That's a very classic explanation, ex description of doubt, right. And that is a kind of thinking because it keeps you at the level of wondering what you should do instead of recognizing what is happening right now. 
So it's still a little bit of buy-in to if only I had the perfect, you know, practice or I should be far, I should be somewhere that I'm not. It's still looking for out there instead of like the journey being to come more and more close to what is actually happening and trusting that things will unfold from there. So that is the classic doubt. That is the classic expression of doubt is wondering, you know, is this the right path? So this last um, phrase that you you said that it's just like this, Uh um, would that be something that would be Sort of a counter action, or counter, mm-hmm. you know, way to counter the, the yeah. doubt. Yeah. That, okay. Right now, I'm I'm unsure. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then maybe just even coming into you know your body a little bit. I mean, what are you sure of? You sure you feel your bottom on the chair? No doubt about that. You know. So just coming back to the real direct experience of being alive right now. And all the rest is really a lot of speculative thinking about how to make that somehow different. <laughs> yeah, the other, the Thank other you. part of yeah. it I appreciate that you're, you're referring to is that the phrase, it's just like this, is a felt sense of the whole thing. The tendency to think, the feeling, the sensation, the like, ah, it's just like this. And then there's a chance for some compassion, for confusion. You know, oh, there's confusion. And sure, I want the best for myself. I wish there was a clear answer for this. But there isn't right now. (laughs) So. Thank you. Yeah. Going once. We'll, you know, we'll be here after the final bell rings, and also the retreat. The retreat, yes. Is a, I hope if you haven't signed up yet, please, and you can come, please sign up for that, because um, first of all, it'll help the cooks who are going to make lunch for us know how much food to buy and help them prepare. But also, it's just a great way to bring this experience to conclusion. Getting, we not only get to talk to one another and process more about this whole. Uh, nine months of work, but we also get to interact a little bit with our fellow sanghas that have been practicing this in Santa Barbara and in Modesto and in Santa Cruz, and, you know, you'll have some fresh small groups and plenty of time for reflection. And you get to be in the beautiful environs of Insight Retreat Center, which is really a lovely place to spend the day. So hope you'll sign up for that. I will send out a reminder with the address, the link again. Yes. We'll send that again. Uh, and I unfortunately won't be there, which is probably why I keep saying goodbye, <laughs> because I knew all year I wouldn't be able to. That date does not. Because we are. That, that, date, oops, that date does not work for me all year. So anyway, it's been a great year. It's been a pleasure to be here with you all. And uh, you'll be in good hands with Liz and Bruni and Shelley and someone from Santa Cruz. And oh, we're going to get day. any rides to go there? Right. Well, that's very important. Here, Carpooling. Well, people are going to go one day before, stay in the hotel, and then go that right. day. So the, the IRC a... website has carpooling link. Please use that link to either make a ride available to one another or to take a ride from someone to and from. And as you point out, there's the possibility of going the night before and staying over if you want to bring your sheets and towels the, and do that. It would what? be ideal if people from here locally did not do that. 
Ah, it's really for the Santa Barbara and Modesto people. Oh, Thank okay. you. Because if you can, I mean, it starts fairly late, like 9.30 or so, so it should be able to get How there. How long of a ride from here? It's about less than an hour. Oh, less than an hour? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. it's an hour. It's okay. an hour. Figure an hour. It's an okay. hour drive. And, and yeah. it's June 23rd, so, you know, we're starting to get into beach, it's summer a, beach traffic, so just... You know, yeah, I would, that's true. I would leave early because it could be crowded on a Saturday getting to the beach over there, but that's the only okay. thing. But do carpool because it's, it's great to have the time in the car to uh, be with your fellow practitioners. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's just that day is squeezed in between two retreats and the residents there don't have time to quite clean up and clean up again for more people than necessary. Um, tight, that's why we're asking you to carpool. We let for a day long. We let in up to seventy people, and there are nowhere near that many parking places. So, if you well, you know, there's try to carpool <laughs> if you can. Yeah. Um, so, thank you very much for this day of practice together, for this nine months of practice together, and um, for all of your beautiful insights and y- your intention, you know, to keep coming back to this. This is, you know, the way we want to live to be the change we want to see in the world, to paraphrase Gandhi. So maybe we can just take a final minute together to settle and meditate and um, appreciate yourself and the practice you're taking out into the world. Even if it's just the world of you and yourself and people around you. May this practice continue to make your life more and more happy, more and more peaceful. And may those beautiful qualities continue to unfold the fruits of practice for yourself and for others. May all beings be at peace.